I'm Johnny Monoxide, and tonight it is just me and Reinhardt. What's up, dude? Not a whole lot, man. Got my got my coffee, got my water, decaf coffee. Yeah, yes, obviously. Um, well, it's just us for now. But uh, before we get to that, dude, speaking of coffee, I just had to uh, drink about a half a cup of coffee to get this keto cookie down my throat. <laughs> what the heck? Um, it's, I'm guessing it's the normal, like over buttered, super fatty, like not great tasting at all. No, no, this cookie. one's no, this is, we tried a, um, a store bought brand of mix instead of making our own. Um, it was like from like the, from like the whole foods or some, whatever the, the crunchy grocery store is. It's not like Betty Crocker or anything like that, but. They're bake, you know, you bake them yourself. And I guess the butter was a little too warm and the chocolate chips melted. So it's just like, they're not chocolate chip cookies. They're just cookies. <laughs> but no, oh, man. But because it's like almond flour and whatever other flour, and it's like, and something, I don't know. They came out very dry. Let's just put it that way. And almond, yeah. f- quote, and I'm using quotation marks, flour does not act like regular flour, where if you moisten it, let's say like milk or whatever. It'll like, you know, just disintegrate naturally. Like, you know, like, like, like you, you dunk a cookie in your coffee and eventually it'll just melt, right? You'll have like cookie. Right. Yeah. You'll have cookie coffee, but, um, these don't actually melt. They just get wet. So that stuff that's stuck to your throat. Yeah. It's still there for a while. <laughs> oh, so you just got like cookie residue running, like sliding very slowly down the back of your throat. Oh, it's terrible. It's delicious. Oh. but it's ter- They're not bad tasting. I'll give you that. I will give them that this, this brand. I forgot what name it is, but the box has already been thrown away, but um, it's actually very good for keto stuff. And I'm not just trying to convince myself that keto stuff tastes good. Uh, I'm trying to get rid of that last, this last 15 around the middle here. Um, I can oh, feel, man. I can I'm, feel there's abs in there. You know, after doing keto for so long, it's like I'm I'm convinced not making keto recipes yourself, but like all the store brought or store bought like keto advertised things are they're just a cruel joke to make you miss actually eating yes. normal food. Yes, Ke- except for this cinnamon keto bread from Lewis Bakeries that I can only seem to find in Tennessee for some reason. That stuff is awesome. Make a peanut butter and honey. Um, and it must only be out your direction too, because I never found it. Yeah, that's right. You looked in Tennessee. Yeah, we. I did. I looked at like every store that we had. You know, <laughs> uh, we'd stop on the road and go to you know have to run into a grocery store. I would look nothing. Yeah, but the thing about the keto bread is they put so much fiber in it that you're basically eating um, a sponge, more or less. Yeah. And I just I can't do that. Yeah, and I mean it's it's not terrible if you really. Like the stuff that I use the keto bread for is like toast with uh, with over easy eggs. So you have something to sop up the yolks with, right? That kind of stuff. When you're doing it like that, you have something else. The bread is not the main character there. It's a side, you know, it's like a side character. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. And that's fine. But when the bread has to be like the main star of the, like a sandwich, like they're not great for peanut butter and jelly. You can definitely tell it's keto bread, right? 
Yeah. 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 It has the, it has that keto bread taste to it. Mm-hmm. And then yeah. with the cookies, you were right though. I think the cookies are just a way to make you miss regular chocolate chip cookies. Cause I do. And then, and then you're going to binge and go buy like five boxes of Oreos or something. Oh, I hate Oreos so much, but Oreo cereal, like I make, I think Jack mentioned this the other day, crush up Oreos in a bowl and just pour milk on them and eat them like cereal. Oh man. Such a fat boy. I can already feel my teeth rotting. (laughs) Right. I haven't had, I haven't had Oreos in years, dude. I I, I haven't either. And it's not because we found out about, what is it? The sigil of Saturn or whatever it is on the, on the top of the cookie. Yeah. Nabisco. (laughs) Nabisco. What is it? Yeah. It's, it's the, well, they're owned by Nabisco. That's like the snack company that owns them. And that's their, their logo. It's right on the, that little curly thingy that's on the top of the Oreo. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's like some sigil. That's awesome. Thanks. Every time you, I think that's the whole point. When you twist the cookie apart, you're doing a magic trick. Right? They're they're ours, Goisha cookies. <laughs> <laughs> you're gonna summon a president of hell. That's what I was saying. Is like every time you crack one of those cookies in the wrong direction, you're summoning something. Oh man, I'm actually doing the motion with my hands. Uh, yeah, that's that's worth looking into. So, well, the motion you're doing with your hands is also the Rubik's cube maneuver. Through, mm-hmm. which, which is probably itself also yeah you ever see them you ever see them koreans do them like that's like some fucking it's it's like wizardry. the naruto hand jutsu stuff right <laughs> hand jutsu <laughs> <laughs> whatever it's called it's it's ninjutsu but like they do the the motions with their hands and yes. they're all like yes they do like 10 motions in one second mm-hmm. naruto oh everything is a ritual it is though, and everything. Yes, and everything. You cannot hold your hands in a position that is not Freemasonic. Okay, you just can't. Now there are there are some positions that are just completely unnatural. But dude, I always steeple my fingers. Right, I do. Like the, if I'm just um, sitting down and I'm talking to you guys or something. I always have my 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 fingers steepled. I go I do that between the 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 hands folded. Right, you know, with the fingers folded, and then the index finger up and down, the two index fingers up and down. Yeah, not, not the Andrew Tate the vagina pose, right, where he's making like the thumbs and the finger. Not that thing. That's like you have to try to do that, right? And everybody knows what that is. So, like, even even if it's an involuntary thing, you look down, you're like, oh god, <laughs> right. But um, yeah, with the fingers thing that I do, I just do it while I'm talking. I'm not even like paying attention to that i'm doing it you know or i'll do or i'll do the uh this is the church this is the steeple thing you know like yeah i'll just constantly because i fidget because i was diagnosed adhd as a child and then ocd as i got older and it's just it's just normal human reactions to stuff like i mean i wasn't like wasn't like i had to do everything in groups of four that was when i was a kid i used to have to turn the light switch off like four times like that kind of actually i never knew that about you yeah, I used to be really weirdly OCD when I was a kid. Hmm. Probably had a lot to do with my parents being divorced and us moving, my mother moving us around every six months, maybe. Well, that o- OCD definitely is is linked to like childhood stress. And I hate using the word, but childhood trauma, mm-hmm. which divorce is a trauma for a child. Oh, absolutely it is. And it was in the way that my, I mean, I know for a fact it was. Um, but yeah, that's that's what happens. And as you get older, you realize that that's, you just need to deal with your your trauma and basically get over it, suck it up. But just don't be sad anymore. How about don't be sad? 
It's oh. the it's the man drowning and has his hand up and, and the high the five comes in. Yeah. Be a man. <laughs> yeah, be a man. That's the high five. Absolutely, dude. And I don't I don't know. Nobody nobody tells their kids to be a man anymore. It's kind of funny. I tell my son, I tell the sixteen year old monoxide to be a man all the time, and he just kind of looks at me with his face like, "But dad, I'm only 16. And he's showing pictures of your of his great grandfather, like my grandfather when he was sixteen. Right, dude's he's like, like ripped and cutting yeah. down a tree or working in a steel mill or something. Right, my grandfather, my mom's side was cutting down trees. My grandfather, my dad's side was working in a factory. So, yep, makes sense. Yep, yep. So, and you know, my, my our our kids play Fortnite. <laughs> my, my, I tell my three year old to be a man. Yeah, <laughs> and he he looks at me and goes, "But daddy, I'm not a man. I'm just a kid. I'm, <laughs> I'm just a boy." Where he's, like, you know yeah. what, bud? You're right. He is. He is, though. Yeah, he is. He's he's hilarious. Even when he's up at five forty-five in the morning. Um. Ours, yeah. Depends on what time she goes to bed. But she's been getting up uh, like six thirty-seven, which isn't bad because I usually leave before that happens. So <laughs> I'm yeah, gone I was before say about that happens. Yeah, three four days a week. I I wake up at four forty-five, go to the gym, and I'm gone before all that. But on the days that I'm on the days that we have to take my kid to preschool, like mm. at the at the church, mm. um, he wants to sleep in till seven, and we have to we have to leave the house at like six thirty. But he he would sleep until seven every other day. He's up at oh, know, wow. five forty five or six. Oh wow! Imagine having a child that sleeps in. Oof. Oh, I know, right? No, we don't. Have yeah, my brother. Them. My brother told me their daughters they sleep in until like eight. <laughs> that's well. That's the sixteen year old, but that's because he plays video games until whatever time that he says he doesn't play them till. Well, yeah, but even their middle child is mm, almost a year younger than my son, mm. and apparently she sleeps until eight, nine in the morning sometimes. That's and they're crazy. like, "Yeah, we we don't get up until eight thirty, nine thirty, you know, just happens." I'm like, "Oh yeah, I, no. I can't even remember my the internal last time clock. I got up past seven. My internal clock goes off at five thirty every morning, no matter what. If yeah, I'm not, up it doesn't matter if I have an alarm or what yeah. or not. Yeah. All right. Well, none of this is paranormies related, but uh, no. my internal clock is about to go off for a while because I'm on vacation. No work for an entire week. This is going to be nice. Awesome. Yes. And and the show is on vacation for the week too. No, no nationalist inquirer. And um, there won't be a content episode next weekend. Well, I might repost. I'll repost an old content episode next weekend. That's what, that's what let's do for next weekend. We'll do a poll on the old Telegram and the Twitter. Oh, excuse me, X, formerly known as Twitter. And we'll see what episodes people want us to post. And we'll post that one next weekend. How about that? No, that sounds good. Yeah. That way you guys get to take a little time machine into the past. And new listeners get to you know hear, hear some of the older shows that have gotten us to where we are. Now, again, see, Reinhardt, you mentioned the words time machine. And this is the safest way to do that because you're only listening to the past you're not actually going there so right you so don't you actually stay heterosexual right you don't need to fabricate if uh fabricate a faraday cage so or just buy a storage container and live in it well, i'm saying if you're going to go in the if you're going to actually go back in time you need a faraday cage yeah that's what i meant anyways uh <laughs> we have an awesome guest coming up in just a few minutes um i've Loved every time I've listened to him, uh, no matter what show he goes on. He goes on a lot of different shows. But we're really glad that he comes on ours. 
what is this his third time now second time third time yeah this will be third time around third time around yeah i keep do we get guests on i mean you know we were this we were like the four thousandth biggest esoteric conspiracy show on the internet you know and the fact that we get some of the guests we get is still humbling to me because some of these guys are you know pretty big names uh popular writers big researchers you know uh like makes me happy when they even return our emails let alone come on the show to talk to us so yeah and it's and it's even cooler and, and i know you agree johnny it's even cooler when we actually become friends with these guys too oh yeah definitely that's that's the best because then you know our community grows and our our listener communities can merge where they you know, where, you know get in when you fit in where everybody where everybody um you know we don't all listen to the same stuff but you get exposed to new things this way right right yeah and our guest i mean he, he's got his his beliefs and his his set of you know, research that, that his work is in, but he branches out. He doesn't just stay on like, you know, one set of shows or, or one type of, of podcast. He goes everywhere. And I that's love right. that. It, that's right. Well, we are talking about the one and only Gary Wayne, and he'll be with us in just a moment. Mr. Gary Wayne, welcome back to the Paranormies. Well, thank you for inviting me back and uh, very happy to be with you and looking forward to the discussion today. Oh, absolutely, man. We've been looking forward to this for a while. Um, sorry about the mix up there. We had a, a little bit of a, I have a vacation schedule that I didn't know if we had, I totally didn't check my schedule against my own schedule when we scheduled the scheduling. <laughs> so, my wife, though, no. on the other hand. No worries. She uh, she was like, so you have an interview Saturday night, huh? When we're supposed to be in Florida? Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so here we are. Anyways. That never uh, goes over well. No, no, no. But it's all good. It's all good. But um, anyway, so last time you were here, man, that was a while ago. Um, we, of course, discussed giants and the Nephilim. And I have a feeling that we're going to continue to discuss giants and the Nephilim again. Yeah, and we talked about royal bloodlines and and how those bloodlines have come down throughout history into you know the the royals and the kingdoms and countries that we know today. But I think we might be taking a time machine, or well, in a safe manner, <laughs> taking a time machine back a little bit to uh, the beginning, so to speak. So, and you've made progress as well on on uh, on your second book. You've got a release date, right? Because last yeah, time I, you came out, we were, it was still in progress. Yeah, it was, uh, and it, it was quite a process to go through the editing process this time because it's a, it's a book. Uh, it, I did a little bit different format in terms of how I wanted it to be presented in terms of the the end notes, and then a lot of the research brought brings up different transliterations of different names and that drives the editors crazy and it drives uh, the AI algorithms that they do to do as a, editing as sort of blue gaskets and things uh, on those things. And so it took, I had to, I had to re-edit the editors, I had to re-edit the uh, AI <laughs> and then I had to do another edit, you know, for going into the digital text. So 
Yeah, it was a process uh, and completely different than than the first book in terms of that process. So uh, it is uh, now out on and available for pre-order. And it's up on Amazon.ca, Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, most online bookstores, as well as my website. The digital book is not up for pre-order yet. That's going to be Kindle as well. And Amazon, you know, they have the digital book. Uh, It's just a matter of when they want to release uh, the Kindle version. There's a shortage of paper. There's a shortage of printers. And there's a shortage of labor. So... We have a March 12th release date for it, but we're hoping to beat that by a significant date. And what happens with the publishers if they put out a release date and you miss it, you really get published or you really get punished by the retailers. And Mm. so they have to put out a safe date. So we're hoping to beat that uh, in a large way. And I have a generous excerpt of all 84 chapters on my website at the Genesis6Conspiracy.com, Genesis6, the number 6Conspiracy.com. And you can pre-order off of that website, or you can link over to those other versions that I said. And you can also look over book one with a generous excerpt of all 98 chapters of that book. And that one is available in Kindle as well. Uh, Well, it is available in Kindle. The new one will be available shortly. And you can order off my website and get a a, a signed copy, or you can link over to Barnes & Noble, Amazon, or uh, Amazon.com or Amazon.ca. So that's the sort of the best way to find out about the book. And, you know, with the new book, I said I wouldn't write a sequel. I thought I had uh, done enough on it, and I didn't want to be redundant. And I actually, I'm 300 pages into another book, and I stopped to do this one. And it's simply because the Christian audience out there, they love the first book, but what they really want is to know how much more is in the Bible about what happened before the flood, giants after the flood, anything to do with giants, anything to do with demons, anything to do with the angelic order, the rebellious angels, and how all of that impacts end-time prophecy. So I go through all of that, and it is as unique as the first book, and it goes deeper than the first book into the Bible and deeper than any other book that's out there. So if you are a fan of giants and prophecy, this is a book for you. Uh, it is specifically targeted at Christians, though, this time. So even though I'll use some, I'll use outside sources, I will uh, rely heavily on, on the Bible, as I did the first one, but even more so for the second one. But what's interesting on this one is I have the footnotes on the page. They're not end notes, so that you can look. If I'm referring to the Ugaritic text, you get the sources and you get some additional information, and it's right on the same page. Oh, that's cool. So you have all your references right there in front of you. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Yeah, that's that's a format that um, Michael Heiser always used to use as well. It, it, yeah, and... I think, and I've not read any of Michael's books, but I'm familiar with what people say that, you know, his work, I think they're going to find this is, this book is similar to how Heiser would do things, but I think it's going to go quite a bit beyond what Heiser was talking about. Excellent. Well, I'm looking forward to it. Um, Reinhardt was like, yeah, Johnny, check this out. He updated his website. There's excerpts from the book and there's, 80, 84 excerpts. I was like, wow. Like you can almost read the excerpts and not read the book. No, I'm just kidding. You have to read the book. <laughs> and after reading through these excerpts, now I absolutely have to read the book. And Reinhardt, you already pre-ordered? Yeah, I sent in a pre-order already uh, last night. And um, yeah, I told Johnny just, hey, for um, 
you know, a while back, I said, Hey, go ahead and, you know, check through the excerpts. Um, just read through them real quick. And he's like 84 chapters. What? <laughs> and I don't get me wrong. I love to read. I love to read, but we, we've been checking your website and you haven't had many updates. Right. So we hadn't checked it yeah. for a little bit. And then all of a sudden there's 84 excerpts. We're like, Oh no, we got homework. So. Yeah. 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 I did a, a fairly large upgrade to the website, getting ready for this book and any other books that I, you know, I'm going to write, I'll be able to put onto the same website. And I want to put out information. That's my number one goal. So mm. I give generous excerpts, but for people who might think that they've read the whole book, you've just skimmed the surface. So oh. the book is, is as loaded with information um, in book two as it was with book one, and it doesn't stop coming at you right to the end. So it's uh, written in the same sort of format. So even though it's sort of detailed and a lot of information, I try and write it in a way that sort of makes it interesting and compelling while delivering the information. And each of the chapters are mini stories mm -hmm. that leads into the next chapter and will come up as the book unfolds. So that's uh, so one of the nice things I hear about people saying, yes, it's long, but it, it's so freaking interesting. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you keep people interested all the way through that they, they'll they they'll take three months to read it, and then they'll go back and read it two, more, two or three more times. Oh, man. So, yeah. How dare you make your book so stinking readable, Gary? Like, <laughs> that is oh, yeah, not you're... fair. You make your, I, do you know how many times when we were, we were prepping for the first Gen 6, and uh, I've had your book for a, for a very long time. I think I had it longer than I've known you, Reinhardt, but uh, but I didn't really read it. It was one of those books that I bought and I just put on my shelf. I'll get to it eventually. And I would hear about it and hear about it. And then when Reinhardt and I first started talking about it, he you've already read it like, what, several times at that point. And I started getting into it. And I was late coming back from lunch several times because I'd be reading and forget what time it was. <laughs> reading your book. So your books are your book your first book was extremely readable. So I'm extremely looking forward to this. The very first chapter is called The Days of Noah. Um yeah. a lot of people today are comparing what's going on today to the days of Noah. Uh do you get into do you first of all how do you feel about that comparison and two uh do you do you agree disagree? Yeah, so uh it's it's the first chapter for kind of that reason. Uh, I'm a contrarian. Uh, the and, and the standard dogma of the days of Noah in Matthew 24 and and Luke, the book of Luke, where it also connects in uh, the days of Lot as well, is that it's just talking about a generation that is godless, um, and. People were sort of unconcerned about the flood that was coming, and that will be all that we should read into uh, the sign that Jesus gave us that follows the fig tree generation, and it's one of the three overarching signs of of the oration. And you need to understand the overarching signs to put that into context with the linear nature of the chronological signs that um, Jesus set out. And so one of the things I do in this book is is I, I highlight the important things of prehistory that you need to understand for context for prophecy. And as the book unfolds, I'll get into end-time prophecy. I'll show people how my approach works in terms of how I understand prophecy and show a linear nature to 
the major events of of the end time. Not all. You can't. I mean, it's just end time prophecy is it's it's just huge in the in the topic. So, um, <clears throat> so I start with the days of Noah because I I want to take on the standard uh, dogma that's out there. And when we look at the days of Noah, that's the exact words that Jesus used as what's in Genesis nine twenty nine where it says the days of Noah were 600 years before the flood and 350 years after the flood. And so we need to understand that there's passages both in the Old Testament and the New Testament that refers to the days of Noah and the things that went on there in reference to the end time. And so when I look at what was going on in the days of Noah, you have... Uh, the flood story, which is the sort of the major event of Noah's days or his generation, and that he's building an ark for a hundred years, and he is testifying to the world that the flood is coming. And the giant narrative of the creation of the original Nephilim is put in in the preamble to the flood story. So it's directly related to the first apocalypse, just as the days of Noah and Lot connects the first apocalypse with uh, what happened as being similar. And then you have Lot that has the days of Sodom that in the destruction of Sodom, just as the end time is going to be destruction by fire. So it's a transitional sort of connection as, as, uh, as Jesus talks about in the book of Luke that gets you to want to understand what was going on before the flood. One of the things that happened before the flood was all of the violence and the violence stems from these giants that were created that were trying to enslave humankind and parade humankind into oblivion and, in, and into the apocalypse. And they were created by the fallen angels, the sons of God, as Genesis, Genesis six discusses to do that, so that the angels don't get blood on their hands for what they're trying to do. And there's another word that's in there that's very interesting, which is very appropriate for us to understand, and sort of the larger point to the question that you're asking, is that the whole earth was corrupted. And that's the Hebrew word shakath, and that means to spoil, to decay, to ruin, to destroy, to pervert. Words like that. And the whole earth was like that not necessarily the waters but the earth was mm. and that means there was a a technological or biological or both that attack on everything that was on the earth so all of the plant genomes all of the dna of the animals and most of the humans and that god was going to start anew with eight uh, and they would be pure in that dna and in spirit to start the new world, just as he called all of the kinds or representatives of the species that were not DNA altered onto the ark to start anew. And so there's a reason why God calls specific animals, because the whole earth was corrupted. That is describing a level of technology. And the things that they built as you know, these archaeological sites and uparts uh, continually to resurface, you know, drives seculars crazy as they try and suppress that information, reimagine the information, uh, just talk 
in crazy terms about the dates of these things. We didn't have the technology to do that DNA uh, manipulation until this generation. And we certainly have not caught up the ability to build things like the pyramids or Machu Picchu or the thousands of sites that are around the world. And so we're just catching up to the technology that was provided for in the days of Noah. Mm. And I think we're receiving additional help and knowledge that was provided to the antediluvians as well uh, that helped them go from where they were to a more advanced civilization than what we have now. And so it's important to understand the days of Noah. And it's important to understand that that days of Noah is used throughout the New Testament as well. And so Sodom and Gomorrah in the days of the flood are used as allegorical context for the destruction coming in the end time. So I get right into challenging the status quo right in chapter one. And then I go right into giants of old, which is about talking to Christians in about how we know these were actually giants. And I take on some subjects like the etymology of the word giant, because there's a lot of disinformation out there that they weren't really giants and the English language is suffering the tyranny of the word giant that was reimagined to what it was event, uh, originally meant to say, which is all hogwash. Uh, they use, what they use is they use half information and then ignore uh, all the other information that would uh, be not helpful to to their argument. So when they're talking about giants comes from Earthborn, they're only giving you half the information. Uh, you know, Earthborn gigantic is the singular form, uh, but it's rooted in um, Gygus or Gaiis, which is the root word for gigantic, just as Gygus and Gaiis plural and Giantes plural versus Gigantes singular is the root for the English word of giant, and Gygus was the Greek word for giant. So I go through that and other things that will help people in their arguments to this idea that uh, an Giants were just an embellishment made up, things like that. So I, I get right into those things right out of the gate so that Christians have arguments, not only from a secular perspective, but what the Bible says about that. And then the book really starts to roll from there. Well, that's that's a heck of an intro right there. I, I Now I really want to read it even more. And I already read this, <laughs> this part of it. Um, uh, before I forget, have you ever seen the pictures of Noah's quote tomb? The quote Noah's tomb thing. I have not. I was not aware <clears throat> there were pictures of Noah's tomb uh, or his sarcophagus or whatever it is, and it's yeah. huge. And it would insinuate yeah. that Noah himself was a giant. Yeah, yeah, and that's typical polytheist uh, way of trying to usurp the biblical narratives mm-hmm. and sort of say they've been reimagined by the monotheists, and so that Noah was a giant and. All all of his descendants were giants, mm-hmm. um, and that uh, the Bible is not accurate. So, and you get a lot of information in polytheism about giants, and well, and some of the versions do draft uh, Noah as a giant 
his sons as a giant or just ham as a giant mm. or just uh, the three sons as a giant or there was two volcane that was a giant and was a stowaway somehow on the ark or that was king og you get like infinite ways but nothing consistent they just sort right. of lay that out there but there's nothing biblically or in polytheist history that points to noah and that he was a giant. Mm -hmm. So then what they do to sort of bring all of that together, they'll look at, let's say, the Epic of Gilgamesh as being um, uh, what the Bible or the writers of, of the Old Testament uh, used as uh, their base for uh, the flood story. And they'll use uh, the date of the Epic of Gilgamesh, which you've got tablets that go back to about 2150 B.C., and then fragments uh, that go back into multiple languages that are even before that. And one should expect that that's the case because we don't get the Torah handed down to Moses until about 1400 to 1450 BC. So yes, they're older, but that doesn't mean they're more accurate, but they are not the Noah story, even though they would call uh, Noah uh, the same or equate Noah with uh, a Pishtun of the uh, flood story in the Epic of Gilgamesh, we have to look at the details. There's Similar on the macro, but they're different on the micro. So you have Enkidu and Gilgamesh, who are post-Diluvian giants, sixth generation after the flood, and Gilgamesh is son of King Lugabanda of Uruk and a fertility goddess named Nin. And so he's a second incursion. He's two-thirds god, one-third human. So is Enkidu. Upnapishtin is also two-thirds God, one-third human, and so is all of his family and the archetypical Nephilim from the flood to start afterwards. So in the Epic of Gilgamesh, you actually get a second incursion and a survival story on an ark. But, you know, once you get into the details of it, what you're seeing is a description of the same event, but one's through a polytheist lens for the survival of giants and one's through the human survival of Noah. And then they say, well, you have the Greek Noah of uh, Deucalion and Pyrrha. Well, Deucalion's the son of Prometheus. So he's another giant. This is another giant story. Those are not, that is not the Greek Noah. And Apnapishtin or Zizudra is not the Sumerian Noah. These are giant stories. And whether they're true or they're not, they are not exactly the same, but they are talking about the same events. And that's how they try and link all of that together and say, well, everything was, and even in some of the Christian groups, they say all of the antediluvians were giants. Well, okay, if that's the case, which we don't have any indication of because we don't get Noah producing giants, um, and none of the Noahites or the Sethites or, or the, um, I'm sorry, the Shemites uh, are giants until they intermarry with giants after the flood to create some hybrids. So you have this 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 understanding that uh, all of them were giants, and if that was the case before the flood, then that means the Nephilim would be even bigger because they were giants in comparison to the humans, and, and that's really part of the definition of a giant. Mm -hmm. Like it is so much larger than and incredibly larger than what the standard human would be. That it, it is it is something unique. It's something new. It's something different. There you go. Yes, because yeah. I don't. I don't believe that Noah was a giant. 
That's just ridiculous. Sorry. Um, if that's the case, then the arc was like, you know, a rowboat then for him. If they are. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like none of the, none of the, none of the stuff that we know of like what we, <clears throat> excuse me, would be, would make any sense if he was actually a giant. <laughs> right. Well, and, and, you know, people try and make the case too for, you know, before the flood, you have the, the intact firmament or, um, or there's also the, the, what many have called the vapor canopy. It's that, it's a different environment on earth that, you know, no rain fell. It was watered by a mist. You know, it's um, plants grew to very large sizes. Animals probably grew to very large sizes. Humans, even if they did, you know, exist as let's say six foot being the, the, the floor, maybe, um, you know, at a, a devolved level from Adam and Eve, but still at a much higher level than we are today, because today all of us are basically, sick degenerated hybrids compared to people before the flood physiologically um those giants would still have to be of an incredible height uh, and there there have been people over the years that have you know tried to wrap their minds around and tried to put together kind of a structure of you know the the first giants that were created and then on down as they degenerated and grew a little bit smaller a little bit smaller before the flood and then after the flood, you you're given heights of giants as they are dying out. You know, Og, the last of the Rephaim. Um, it it's a hard thing to do, and I notice you you delve really far into that in your second book. Is kind of is hierarchies and and where these labels Rephaim, Nephilim, you know, all of the names, all of the Im tribes throughout the Old Testament, and and kind of breaking that down. Yeah, you know, one of the things that you learn as you dig deeper into the Bible in, in the Old Testament is how much it talks about giants and how many kinds of giants that there were. And so the translations don't necessarily always help us uh, to, to understand that. But, you know, if you get a tribe of beings, let's say, like the Maka theme, um, they don't come out of the table of nations, so you don't have a patriarch for that. Um, and so there's many nations like that. And so I identify all the nations that are identified that don't belong into the table of nations or don't have a patriarch, because you have the hybrids uh, in the table of nations that don't have a patriarch, like, as in the patriarchless Canaanites. And these are tribes that are created from a Rephaim patriarch that married the daughters of the Canaanites or the daughters of the Hethites, which are Hittites, or the daughters of the Sidonians to create these hybrids. And so that's why only the three, Canaan, Heth, and uh, Sidon are listed as patriarchs, and you get like the Amorites, and you get like the Hivites, and you get the archites and all of these names that don't have a patriarch out of the 70 nations listed in the table of nations of Genesis 10 and first Chronicles, nine of them aren't listed. And then outside of the table of nations and an add on, we get a marriage showing up in Genesis 36. That's also recorded in Chronicles between Eliphaz, the son of Esau and Timna, who's a Horim, as described in Deuteronomy 2 as a giant, which is Raphaim, and I'll come back to that in a second. And daughter of Seir, uh, not the patriarchal 
an eponymously name for eponymous name for the Horim, but certainly the patriarch for the Dukes of Edom or the Dukes of Seir, and she's a daughter. She's a pure blood Raphaim female marrying Eliphaz to create a hybrid nation of the Amalekites, so that you can make sense of what's going on in the Old Testament. But that marriage is not in the table of nations, and it happens sometime afterwards when those 70 patriarchs are created and accordingly uh all of the patriarchless nations of the canaanites they they have raphaim patriarchs and i'll t- trace those nations back to a specific raphaim patriarch and all of the other ims as as i like to do it because uh, I think that's the best suffix to describe and separate the giants from the hybrids, uh, from the humans, uh, which are usually ites and words like that. Uh, so I will trace back those giants to a specific patriarch as well. Now, one of the things that we need to sort of understand in the New Testament or in the Old Testament after the flood is that Nephilim isn't the word that's used for the post-Diluvian giants. It's Rephaim. And so Nephilim only shows up three times in the Old Testament. Shows up in Genesis 6 for uh, the giants, which goes back to the Hebrew word Nephil, and the I-M is the male plural. And there were the mighty ones, which were the Gibberim. And I-M being the male plural for Gabor, for mighty and then it shows up again in in numbers 1333 two times and that's when the terrified scouts that went into canaan did not want to go into and take the land of the covenant in the time of the exodus and the time of moses and joshua because they saw three anakim kings there telmai sheshai and ahiman as well as people taller than the Israelites, and that they said that these were the children of giants. So the Anakim were the children of giants, which is, and it says that twice, and that's the Hebrew word Nephilim. And it's designed to embellish the size of the giants to the size that were before the flood by the use of that word versus Rephaim. And that it testifies to the veracity of the giants before the flood. And Israel, Israelites were well aware of that concept of what caused the flood, who caused the flood, and the giants before the flood. And how large and ferocious that they were. And we know that these were Anakim because in Joshua and Caleb's part of the report, they report this accurately. And in Deuteronomy 1, 40 years later, you get a recap of the of this of the details and affirming that the Anak were there. Now the Anakim are described in Deuteronomy 2 as giants, and that is the word Rapha, which is the singular form of Raphaim. And so they're closely related to the Raphaim giants after the flood. Now the parent of the Anakim is Arba as the book of Joshua talks about. And Hebron was called Kiriath Arba, the city of Arba, the patriarch for the Anakim, uh, until it was changed to Hebron. And that Arba is not in 
the table of nations. And Rapha, the patriarch for the Raphaim, is not in the table of nations. And so you get this consistency that only the descendants of Noah and that direct lineage, where you can take them back to those 70 patriarchs for nations that are, are listed in the in, in the table of nations. And so Rapha is used 25 times in Hebrew in the Old Testament, and twice it's translated directly, not as giant, but as Raphaim, to declare it as a tribe. In Genesis 14, in the War of Giants, you get the tribe of the Raphaim that are attacked first by the giant kings coming out of Mesopotamia, and then the Raphaim tribe is listed in the mighty ten nations, as opposed to the mighty seven that are listed in the Exodus, because uh, there's what I call the ancient triple K that's added into the mighty seven. And it's in it's in the passage where Abraham is being promised uh, the land uh, as part of the covenant being made that goes from the Nile to the Euphrates. And those are all of the nations that are in there. And the Raphaim are one of those nations that are listed as part of that mighty 10. So we know they're a tribe as well. But they're somehow different and a little bit smaller than the giants from before the flood. And one of the, the things is, is is they have a fertility issue. And so I walk through how we know they have a fertility issue, that they would have these new dynasties being started because... What happens in polytheist history is you start a new dynasty with a pure blood matriarchal uh, dragon queen or fairy queen, and you have that united with a very important bloodline of the patriarchal. And then, and then, so in the case of Timna and Eliphaz, you have a descendant bloodline of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and or and and relative to Jacob who lost all of his blessings and birthrights and magianic promise to his younger son his son's going to marry as a as a bloodline um into the Raphaim bloodlines or the horim branch of that as and to start a new dynasty and, and it, it connects to why the amalekites are wanting to wipe israel from the face of the earth because they want to usurp those blessings inheritance and magianic promises given to Jacob, who changes his name to, to Israel and starts the 12 tribes. And in the Old Testament, after the flood, you get this term called the terrible ones that I talk about in depth in uh, book two. And that's the Hebrew word erit. And you get the terrible ones and the best sort of description of them in the very uh, unique prophecy of ezekiel 32 where you have these terrible ones speaking from the sides of the abyss as the ones who did terrible things that were slain on the earth as opposed to the mighty that are also in the pit prison which is l which is the fallen angels but these are the terrible ones the erit or eritim and they're talking to pharaoh another terrible one in the in this dual prophecy and these are the ones as you as you take that word back into hebrew it's it's descriptions of giants in terms of their strength and their stoutness and things like that but also that they are have a fertility issue in the definition as well as um being childless 
And I don't think they had the ability, inability to reproduce. They seem to have, which is different from the Nephilim, who produced in great numbers before the flood. They seem to have an inability to produce enough numbers of females, which is why Timna marrying in with Eliphaz becomes such an important dynasty for the survival of these giants lest they go extinct and so they have to continue to intermarry so that they don't go extinct and uh, they tend to be a little bit smaller uh, in terms of size than what the giants were before the flood and they seem to have a few other sort of restrictions or degradations from the giants that were created before the flood. And another interesting thing that sort of connects all of this together is that Arit is the second word of the compound word Ugarit, of the Ugaritic text. And in the Ugaritic text, it talks about Balim or Baal and the Balim and the assembly of gods there who are going to create dynastic bloodline giants called the Rapiu and the Rapium in the in the uh, assembly of da, of the Tanu and the, the Tanu is a, another tribe that's um, we would understand in other cultures as the Tuatha de Danan um, and that these are the demigod Rapiim uh, RPM in the original Semitic uh, R-P-I-U-M, as it's also transliterated into English, and R-A-P-I-U, R-A-P-I-U. And it's the root word for Rafa and Raphaim in the Hebrew language, which is connected. And what's important about that is the first word is U-G. And that's thought to be uh, in in a lot of areas of research, and I would agree with that with the etymological connection and the meat and taking that back to Hebrew and Semitic is UG would be Og, and Og would be spelled O W G, and he's the last of the Raphaim. He's the last of the post-Diluvian first-generation giants, and he is root. That word is rooted in. Uh, UWG, which would be sort of silent and wouldn't be included in the original uh, Semitic text. And this now becomes the city of Og, the terrible one, the Rephaim. And after the War of Giants in Genesis 14, where most of the Rephaim tribe is wiped out, he will end up moving to uh Mount Hermon and Bashan and have his centers, his capital and religious centers at Edrai and Ashtaroth. Just as those are the cities of the Balim worship in Mount Hermon, and their assembly is at Mount Hermon, and so he's going to be ruling over the Amorites and uh, and his sixty cities, his twelve pentapolis cities in the time of the conquest. And so all of this sort of starts to come together as a consistent story that these giants are large, but they're smaller. And so his bed, which was made of iron because couldn't hold Og's weight, it was nine cubits long and four cubits wide. So he's the king of Ugarit. He's the king of Adrai. He's the king over 12. He's a royal bloodline. And as Josephus noted, you should measure him on a 21-inch uh, cubit versus the standard 18. That would put his bed at about 16 feet long and seven feet wide. So he's going to be somewhere between 12 and 15 feet tall. And he's going to be probably four to six feet wide to fit into that 
bed. So he has that two to one height to width ratio and significantly larger than any of the humans. But he's not as large as Gilgamesh, who also was spoken of in the Ugaritic texts and also in Sumerian texts and have the same dimensions. And he had relationships with with the Ugarit city. And he is 11 cubits tall, and he's the king of Uruk, so he's going to be measured on 21 inches, and he's four cubits wide, so he's going to be seven feet wide and 19 feet tall. And he's a dark-haired giant versus a red-haired giant or a blonde-haired giant, so something a little bit different uh, as you get into the different kinds of giants in the Indo-Aryan groups after the flood. I know that was a long rant, but uh, it just... I wanted to give sort of people sort of a feel how much information is in the Bible and that we do have sources, particularly the Ugaritic texts, that line up perfectly with what's written in the Bible. No, that makes sense. I mean, there, like I said, there, there is a definite hierarchy, and, and your explanation there shows that there is a definite narrative that actually goes throughout these time periods. I mean, in the Bible, we are given a lot of detail, but it's also the Bible does have its focus. And if you're if you're not looking for certain things, then you're not going to find them. And yes, you have outside sources that provide more information, but that's what a lot of people are interested in is finding out, okay, where did the red haired giants come from? Where did, you know, we have blonde haired giants, we have dark haired giants. Um, they go into like Johnny, we, we talked about, we were talking about the Amorites recently. And, um, I think on the last nationalist inquirer, correct. And the, the The Israelite conquest. Oh yes. Yes. Yeah. And you've got these civilizations. I'm glad too, you mentioned technology before the flood and, and, some technology, at least a knowledge of some technology after the flood. I know in your first book, you talked about like the vaults of Enoch um, and how technology was rediscovered after the flood. That's something that we on the show have talked about quite a bit is that ancient technology. It's become very, very popular in the past few years. Mm-hmm. I mean, what do you have, Johnny? Oh, um, no, the, the ancient technology part, like you can't look at those you can't look at stuff like Baalbek or, or Gobekli Tepe or any of the other stuff that they're finding or is even still, sta- you know, that's buried or is even still standing and say that, yeah, that was done with just, you know, the most primitive tech because we've learned how to view history through the evolutionary lens uh, of evolution because we, we wouldn't be able to say ancient equals primitive any other way if it wasn't, if it wasn't for the, you know, for that, for that lens there. Um, and there's you can't look at that stuff and look at the perfect the perfection in the angles the perfection in just like the 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 pyramid at Giza right like all that the um what's the chamber the, is it the, the the king's chamber that everybody has all the the different discussions about what it's for but it's got all these different angles that line up to different stars and stuff right I'm not I'm yeah, not the Egypt guy that's Jason Jason wrong. from Archaics has done so much work on just that one pyramid itself right yeah. but. All of that implies that there's some sort of technology, and it wasn't just you know slaves and whips and hammers and chisels, right? Yeah, technology to build it because we can't do it today, right? We can't align it to uh, the astrological alignments in conjunction with all the sacred geometry, mm-hmm. in conjunction with the size of the project, and in the perfection of the building process that they did. We just can't do that, and that it was more than just the technology that built 
these monuments is that they're built on special sites that in the occult belief system has some sort of power, whether or not you want to look at that on ley lines or mm -hmm. some sort of energy grid, as, as they would also do, that would help propel whatever technology was used in these these uh, monuments. And portals and gateways are often associated with them. And towers and pyramids and ziggurats were considered built for the same purposes on same types of grounds. And, you know, as the uh, Christians uh, moved into Europe, they would build these Gothic cathedrals on these ancient holy sites and these ancient places where they used to have, you know, rituals and magic going on and things like that. But right. when I look at the closest thing to understanding how all of that comes together, it's with Nimrod at Babel City. And, you know, I talk in book one about Hermes finding the two pillars or one of the pillars that leads him to... Uh, of Lamech and Enoch, depending on which version that you're looking at from the Gnostics, and finds the knowledge and the religion uh, under the Great Pyramid, uh, 365,000 uh, and, uh, and 250 books stacked on nine vaults, and brings that knowledge back to Nimrod, who they used to build Babel City and Babel Tower. And in the biblical narrative, we're told that working as one people together under Nimrod, anything they decide they want to do, they're going to be able to accomplish. So there's this inference that there's this knowledge that is being worked on and it's somehow being used in a way that's not fully explained as to what Nimrod is trying to do with this ziggurat or this tower that he's building. But in the polytheist versions, as it's being built, he's going up there and doing these hubris speeches saying, God, if you ever get out of line again, if you ever try and bring another flood, I'm going to use this tower and my knowledge and my strength and I'm going to go into heaven and I'm going to kill you. He's a true Antichrist type figure. And Antichrist figures all throughout history are going to try and do similar things just as Isaiah 14 talks about Satan going into heaven to be like God and, and, and part of the angelic revolution. But it doesn't come about from a Antichrist-type figure until the end time in Daniel 8.10, who actually does it and throws some of the starry host on the earth. And that's the same timing as the war in heaven in Revelation 12 at the start of the reign of the Antichrist. So there's a lot of information there from prehistory that's going to help us understand end-time prophecy, but it also points to the fact that there's something more going on there because you can't build a mud-brick ziggurat into another realm, into another dimension, into the heavenly realm. So what was he trying to do? In the Akkadian version of the Tower of Eridu, and and there's several different versions, Armenian, Sumerian, and there's even traditions of the Babel Tower with the Kishamaya and the Aztecs. And I cover, again, a lot of that in the first book, but the point of the technology here is that in Akkadian, one of the peoples that comes from Nimrod after Babel 
the definition isn't confusion of language for Babel. It is Bab as in gateway or portal, and L as in gods. So a stargate of the gods or a portal of the gods, which means interdimensional sort of travel as you sort of look at that. And now it starts to make some sense that if Antichrist was threatening to go into heaven, that would be how he would have to do it with that kind of technology. So this knowledge is that ancient antediluvian technology. And he may have been wanting to go into Sheol or Hades and unlock the gods before the flood who created the giants that were locked into the pit prison that's located there in another dimension and or also let out the giant spirits that are in the sides of the abyss that we talked about as well. And again, this is something that happens in Revelation 9 before the midpoint of, of the last seven years. So when we talk about angelic technology that was of old that we don't have today, but we're just starting to catch up on that, we're talking about the multiverse, um, the metaverse, just as uh, Enoch the Evil is named Metatron in third Enoch, because he became like a god, as Thoth did, with all of the knowledge. And now you have the metaverses, you have meta with Facebook, you have all of this new sort of terminology that all goes back into prehistory. But that angelic technology that allows you to go interdimensional is part of what's coming. And it's all developing in parallel lanes. And we're just catching up to what they had, even at the time of of Nimrod because he was threatening to use that technology and then you have the confusion of languages and, and the loss of that knowledge or the disbursement of that knowledge uh, and you know sort of a degradation of the of the ability to use that just as the flood was intended to do so yeah we need to understand that the days of Noah 350 years after the flood and 600 years before the flood, we need to understand everything that went on there because nothing is new under the sun as the book of Ecclesiastes talks about. And that what that once that once was, will be again. And uh, I think it all works in, in, in that sort of cohesive togetherness that it's going to be like the days of Noah. So are they already sinning against the plants and against the animals and against the earth? Is that what the, the human pig chimeras up on the ISS that Alex Jones is always screaming about is part of it? Well, we're starting to. We're yeah. manipulating DNA and plant genomes. Oh, I know. That's I know. The, I was just, I so like that's to. the start of it. Um, yeah, but sure. it'll go even to a higher level of what they're going to do. Because, again, we're still catching up. Yeah. Johnny, you just had to get the the human pig chimeras reference in there. I did because it's true. I mean, and again, Alex isn't lying. You know, Bill. You know, Bill Hicks isn't lying. Um, they are making human pig chimeras. They're just not doing it up on the ISS. They're doing it at the University of Georgia. You know, places like that. Right. So yeah, and I mean, we we talk about all the time the the manufactured quote food shortages and Bill mm -hmm. Gates buying up all the farmland and everything going on across the world of of genetically alternating or altering food, um, genetically altering animals, livestock, you know, livestock that you would purchase that you would think you're purchasing from birth. Well, it's already corrupted. You know, you, you think, oh, great. I'm just going to go out to the store and buy a ton of meat. I'm going to buy eggs and vegetables and I'll be good. Right. All GMO. They're not going to, they're not going <laughs> to let it be that simple for you. And that is, so we see that like Gary, you're talking about there. We're just catching up. I mean, to, to that level of technology, 
if I can ask, what it, what in your opinion was that level of technology? Because I've always envisioned like the, I think a lot of people have envisioned the post-flood or the pre-flood world as almost of almost a, a sci-fi fantasy level of technology. Yeah, and I, and I think it would be very close to that. Um, you know, they were you know they were destroying the world through war, and they were taught the art of war by Azazel, and not only the tactics but building of the weapons. And so that technology would have the ability to destroy the planet. And when we look at the understanding of this knowledge. And from the through the occult lens, this is the absolute, as they like to talk about, and it has uh, the power to destroy the planet, and that's one of the reasons why they want to keep it secret, secret, and that they continue to develop that. So, yeah, you have this this level of technology in war and technology in all sorts of different things that includes somehow activating these portals, somehow activating these monuments to do spectacular things. So going between dimensions is a standard occult doctrine. So when you get into the Ugaritic texts or the uh, Epic of Gilgamesh, you have like Gilgamesh going into the underworld. Well, the underworld's in the earth, but it's not in the same dimension. And so he would have needed to access some sort of portal. And in the Ugaritic text, you have the Repium that are able to go into the underworld, both when a king dies and they want to make sure he gets safely there, as opposed to going to the pit prison that we talked about, um, or have to wander the earth. Um, But they have, the ability to go there anytime that they kind of want to. And that implies they had to use some sort of technology or code or something to be able to access that. So if you understand that portals are part of these sites, then Gilgal Raphaim, the wheel of the giants or the wheel of the spirits, because uh, 7496 uh, is a word that's connected to giant. 7495 is the uh, root word for Rafa, meaning heel. Um, and, you know, so if you get to like Raphael as a uh, an angelic name, that would mean God heals or um, <clears throat> healer of God, depending on how you want to translate that. That's the root word for 7496, which is a demon spirit, a shay, um a uh, unclean spirit, uh, words like that, ghosts. Um, and it's also 7495 is the root word for 7497 for giant. And all of those express the meanings of Raphaim because they were thought to have this healing power uh, and that they could heal themselves and they could heal others as recorded in the Ugaritic text. And they had the ability to go into... Um, the other world. And when you talked about the sarcophagi, I mean, they use these sarcophaguses for burial or some people even speculate for healing. What we do know is they had the ability to heal themselves. So if you wanted to kill them, you had to take their head. Uh, they had to do it in a way that they had no ability to repair themselves because it would be so sudden and so traumatic. So somehow they were able to do this. 
and we're we should expect to see interdimensional technology affecting our world and leading us to a point where it's going to be used on a regular sort of basis and we have technology like ai merging with quantum computing and digital currencies and that's part of that whole angelic technology because that's going to work in multiple verses because quantum computing is designed to work in multiple dimensions mm -hmm. and you need an ai that has the ability to do searches and and do things in multiple levels as opposed to a sort of a single shot search of quantum computing technology so you need these technologies to merge and that's what's going to be merging into the mark of the beast system that and many other technologies um, that will be this interdimensional technology uh, where they're going to supply unlimited knowledge that's going to provide part of the key to godhood which is knowledge and the other one is is uh, unlimited life in the physical world so we're arriving back at those levels and we should also expect to see somehow giants impact the end time as well whether it's through the descendants or a recreation of giants or return of these disembodied spirits into oiketarians or dwelling places for the spirit as in clones or some sort of technology where they can participate uh, and one might want to look at revelation 9 in in that war as a chimera kind of army and perhaps oiketarian for or dwelling place of the spirit for these disembodied spirits and that word comes from habitation in jude 1 6 which is oiketarian which means a dwelling place for the spirit and one other place in the new testament in 2 corinthians 5 2 for the house in heaven as the dwelling place of the spirit so there's a dwelling place for the spirit that's required in the dimensional world is in heaven and also in the physical world which is the soul and the body for that spirit because angels are spirit beings and you start tying that together and you start to understand that if they were able to create a soul and a body to house their spirit that's how they create the dna to reproduce giants right which they freely admit that they're doing these kind of things like jordy rose during one of his little talks they talk about how they're getting algorithms from some of the other dimension. You know, the conspiracy theorists say this. <laughs> they're kind of right, but uh, that's, yeah, and yeah. and in the jargon, they call those in, um, unseen or invisible algorithms daemon algorithms. Right, demons, right. demons, <laughs> d a e m o d a e m o n s. Right, yeah, yeah, and that's the Greek word that is the root word for demon in English. Crazy. So. Yeah, so yeah. now you start to wonder, can the demons actually have a dwelling place and technology? Well, and that right. brings up the meme that we always see. What is it? Speak with, learn how to speak without speaking. And what's that one, Reinhardt? You know the one where it's like, the, it's what your phone is basically, right? Oh, right. I can't remember what exactly it is, but yeah. And I'm getting serious, Johnny. Uh, Wayne McCroy vibes, alchemical tech revolution, uh, cybernetic messiah, you know, building that yes. that mixture of you know, alchemy, technology, and magic, but it's all the same. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, it's yeah, all parts of a whole. Yeah. There's an interesting word that ties in in the Old Testament. And people are familiar with idols, um, but there's a specific idol. Um, and sometimes it's translated as idol, and sometimes it's 
translated into English as the Hebrew word. So this idol that Rachel is taking from her father um, is a very important family idol, and uh, and she has to eventually return it. It's that important. Well, that is the Hebrew word for uh, what's transliterated as certain kinds of idols uh, in the Bible as a teraphim. And a teraphim is a talking idol. So somehow um, you have these inanimate idols, or whatever those idols were, were a dwelling place for a disembodied demonic spirit to talk through. So they're iPad, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So (laughs) whatever it was we're going to see something like that in the end time. And so much so we're going to get like the teraphim of all time, which is the image of the Antichrist that is probably going to be operated by demons or controlled by demons at the command of Antichrist and uh, false prophet. And we know demons are associated with Antichrist and the false prophet because at the time to gather the armies in Revelation 16 to Mount Hermon, you have demon spirits coming out of not only Satan, but the false prophet and Antichrist to gather these armies. So there's this association of demonic possession, or you could also translate that out of Greek and into English as commanding those demonic spirits so you could have false prophet that are able to command it just as solomon is said in legend to command uh demonic spirits and commanding the image of the beast that would probably have demonic spirits in it as well well that kind of ties into like the the sigils of king solomon johnny that's something we've encountered a lot Mm -hmm. you know the pentacles of king solomon those sigils that are uh, uh recorded in the books like the lesser key of solomon Right. And they also connect with, like, it's that that four chain meme that goes around every you know six months uh, that they connect with computer chips, right? And that's how they're that's how the demons are speaking to us and whatever. That's how they they use the somehow use the uh, the, the shiny little black mirrors that we have in our pocket, you know, to communicate. Yeah. I mean, it makes it makes sense. I mean, that all this that the the, uh, the Wayne McCroy theory, yeah, and and as AI grows. Mm-hmm. Know in, into at least AI that we see forward facing, public facing. Right. Don't quote. forget, Reinhardt, everything that they have is 20 years ahead of what we have. <laughs> but only 20. <laughs> but only 20. Right. Only, only 20. 20. <laughs> it's only ever 20 years, you guys. So don't worry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they, they, you know, they probably are a little bit ahead, but you know what? They cannot help. Uh, they can't resist from using technology. So anytime oh, right. they got it, they get it out there. So, yeah, I think they're not showing us everything yet, but they're still working on things and they haven't got that sort of grand nexus of the sure. technology that they're looking for. Otherwise, they would be flaunting it and mm. using it to bring about their dystopia. Well, you know, every now and then they have to break out the the Jewish space lasers <clears throat> to get some property, you know, in Hawaii. But, you know, or whatever, but um, other than that, yeah, they try to keep. If there is, if there is technology, they, they don't usually flaunt it. Um, I, yeah, I think they, there. I still think there's technology. I mean, of course, like the the stuff like the uh, the Phoenix lights, like like the stuff, the Tic Tacs, the stuff that we see um, that we would call like black black ops skunk work projects, like that kind of stuff uh, that they use to pretend that there's aliens. Uh, 
Um, I think that stuff exists, but as far as like the, the stuff that they need to like completely publicly enslave the world without, you know, just, you know, some just come out and like, I'm now in charge of everything. And you know what I mean? That's not happening anytime soon. Yeah. 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 But we see things developing, you know, at a exponential oh, yeah. factor in terms of the, the technology. Oh, uh, for sure. So, it it could start to really happen fairly quickly, or there could still be a ways away from what they're trying to develop. It's hard. It's, it's hard to know. I think we're closer than further, but we have to. We can't get ahead of end time chronology. So no, I, right. I think I think we're I think we're closer than further as far as the technology goes too, because I am a firm believer in that the stuff that we're allowed to play with is is pretty old tech compared to the things that that they they have, or at least. Or uh, some of them, not all of them. I, you know, there's, there's, and again, there's levels to all of these people that are quote in charge. Right. Yeah. That was that was one thing that you know, Gary, you you went through quite extensively in your first book was all of these different societies, whether it's the Freemasons, which you know trace all the way back to Tubal Cain and Enoch the Evil, Rosicrucians, Priory of Sion, you know, uh, yeah. going throughout the Catholic Church. I mean, there's there's hierarchy and there's different factions. They they may all be working towards the same goal, like Johnny, you're saying is, you know, bringing about whatever is coming, um, but they they can't get ahead of the timeline completely. Yep. They can't force the timeline past a certain point. It seems. Yeah, they try, but they can't they try. Yeah. yeah, you can see them trying. Like it's yeah. it's pretty funny to see them trying. Like they're like you know like with the Israel thing, they're trying to do the thing where like the whole you know the you know the part where everybody gets together and gangs up on Israel at the end. Yep. They keep really pushing to try to get that done. Yep. Like, <laughs> yep. They will, and that, and people are going to fall for it as being Armageddon. Mm-hmm. Or uh, and they they'll get ahead of themselves on the chronology. So because we also have to understand the sorrows and the contrived catastrophes of the sorrows, just as you guys were describing, they're the ones that are causing all of the issues, and then right. they're trying to present the solution so that you know we accept their globalist society and a universal religion and this dystopia that they want to impose on us. So uh, the birthing sorrows. The birth pangs, mm. they get stronger as you get through the fig tree generation and they start working together. And so by the time you get to the trumpets, I mean, to the seals, you have 25% destruction of the people in all of the world. Mm-hmm. So we'll have lesser destruction before that 25% that people are going to think is Armageddon. And in fact, in Revelation 6, you have at the end, the kings of the earth, the destruction is so great with 25% destruction of the seals, is that they hide in caves thinking it's the day of the Lord. And yet there's still the trumpets at 33% coming. And the year of the wrath bowls where everything would be destroyed except that uh, Jesus steps in. So it gets worse. And we need to sort of understand that just because we're looking at some destruction in the Middle East today, that's just part of the sorrows and the birth pangs, and it's going to get stronger. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other thing you were talking about is is the hierarchy of the visible ones. So I cover that off in a little bit more structure in, in book two as well. So there's a chapter 69 called the Thelemic Tree. So what I provide is is uh, a structure of these secret societies, not in a pyramid form, 
um, but in what they call the Thelemic tree. And the Thelemic tree in the, the occult is two different trees. One is like an ash tree or an elm tree, which is the geneo- genealogical tree. Um, invented for them for tracking their genealogies in the different branches. But the other one is like a cedar tree, like the massive giant cedar trees of Lebanon and Mount Hermon, just as the um, Amorites are described as large as the cedar trees of Mount Hermon. And these are evergreen trees, and they have these branches that come down. So they have in the branches, all of these branch organizations that link into the trunk, and the trunk is divided in the thalamic tree into certain trunk groups, with Freemasonry being at the bottom and the 13 families at the top. And so I talk about those groups, but now I give sort of the structure, and then there's a hierarchy amongst all of these different branches. So that let's say you have Bohemian Grove, that would be part of a branch that would connect into the Illuminati trunk organization or the Skull and Bones. Mm. Um, you would have, let's say, the Committee of 300 uh, trunk organization would be responsible for, and, and they'd have branches going all around and coming in and having their people working in those hierarchies within the branches. You would have, like, the Club of Rome, the... Uh, World Bank, um, the IMF, uh, the Davos crew, uh, the Bilderbergers, they all funnel into that thalamic tree. So I give that uh, description and analogy and that word uh, thalamic or thalema, and people might be familiar with it through the Golden Dawn, and that's where you might get some of the visibility of the word. They actually sort of take that back a further into history, but they draft the word out of Greek, which is used for the will of God, you know, as in, you know, in, as in the, in the Lord's prayer, uh, where it has the word will, and it has some bad translations for some like orgies and sexual things as well as that comes out in, into the New Testament, but that's the Greek word thalem, and it's, you know, comes from God's will, but when the occult uses it, it's the will of a specific God, but not the God of the Bible, the God of the celestial mafia, Godfather of that bloodline and of the patriarchal Nephilim or Raphaim that they also take themselves back to. So when they swear an oath, as in King Charles III swearing an oath to God, he's not swearing an oath to the God of the Bible. He's swearing an oath to the God of his genealogies, the Thelemic genealogical tree, or the, and he is swearing to a God of the Baalim, of the Council of Gods, also covered in detail in this book of, of Psalms 82 that rules over the 32 nations, uh, or the 70 nations in Deuteronomy 32. So this is an oath-based system they have imposed on the earth, and this is a divine right of inheritance ritual that goes right back into prehistory to the Raphaim and the Nephilim who received their divine authority from the Balim after the flood and from the parent gods before the flood so that the Nephilim would have received authority from parent gods like El in Canaan or Kronos in Greece or Anu in Sumeria, 
versus Zeus after the flood in Greece versus Anki or Enlil after the flood in Sumeria, Baal after the flood in Canaan, Osiris in Egypt, and on and on and on around the world. So I provide that. And one of the other things I also do is also get into the Jesuits um, in Section 6 as well. Uh, because and I don't cover Jesuits in in the Genesis six conspiracy part one because I thought it might be too much of a distraction in terms of where they think that the Jesuits fit in, but I explain where they fit in in this one and where they come from. I give you all the basis to the roots in Genesis six one as to how the Jesuits would come about. They're the new Templars that are created by the uh, invisible thirty three um, to. Um, reinstall the Templar influence within the Catholic Church. And I talk about their agenda and everything that they do and how that fits into the end time. I know that was another long rant, sorry. <laughs> oh, no, those are great. Um, I always learn so much, but I always have to go back and listen to it again like three or four times because there's so much stuff in there. <laughs> um, and we never like listening to our own voices. <laughs> no, but but, but luckily... With Gary Wayne's episodes, we don't have to listen to our own voices around her. Honestly, Gary, and that's not that's not a bad thing. Like I, dude, I as a as like listen having listened to you on many other podcasts, listening to you on my podcast is about like except it's much more comfy because like I'm at you know like it's like now and not a recorded one. <laughs> but it's, I've yeah I've always enjoyed listening to you go on your on your long dissertations of point you know for for one point in your book it's great because you get into such depth into the explaining of stuff that it make and it, you can't not walk away you can't walk away not understanding right well and that's yeah that's that's something that I'd say the majority of people that get into these topics. They just don't know where to start. They don't know where to start connecting, you know, the Jesuits to the Nephilim to today's beast system that is trying to, you know, force the end times into existence. Um, I mean, the past couple of years, and I know we talked about this on Royal Bloodline stuff as well uh, on our last, on your last appearance on our show, but you know, the Jesuits are still so interconnected with just about everything today. Yeah. I mean, through and and by extension so is uh switzerland <laughs> um yeah and i would i would i would intersect the jesuits into um the philemic tree into either the committee of 300 i think more likely uh the uh, council of 33 so you have a black nobility that's associated with the jesuits and sponsoring them back to power um in the 1800s after they were disbanded and that's and there's two levels of the black nobility in italy and the black nobility is made up of merchants that came from phoenicia in the middle east that showed up in venice so like the medicis would be part of that sort of group and were very uh effective in getting into control over the old banking system that was funding the Catholic Church. But there's an older Black nobility, that's the Julia Gens that I cover um, in, in book two, as well as, you know, talking about the LB Gens and some other Genses. That's the Julia Gens that goes back to uh, Julius Caesar, Augustus, and to specific families, royal bloodlines of the senators that go back to Romulus and Remus um, in, wow. in that bloodline system. Um, and so they're not, the Jesuits are a more 
Johnny Come Lately organization, and they're they're formed through sponsorship through some bloodline organizations like the Montessa Order that answers directly to the court of um, <clears throat> of uh, the King of Spain uh, of that time, and you have uh, the Jesuits being inserted in the 1500s through Ignatius and sponsoring of his uh, society so that they can get control of the education, they can get control of the banking system and control of the seminary schools within the Catholic Church. They're the new Templars, um, and they have a specific role. So with that tie-in to if it was just the lower black um lower black nobility of Italy, you might put him into the committee of 300. But because you have that other black nobility, which is more powerful, which is larger, is part of the larger black nobility of Europe, or Rex Deus, as I call them in, uh, or Rex Deus, you could also pronounce it that way in, in, in book one, you have a more pure and ancient bloodline um, that would have them reporting into a higher level on on the Thelemic tree than the Committee of 300 Families. So I, I connect them into the Council of 33 from my information. And so they're subservient to the royal bloodlines. Mm. Now, they go rogue. They went rogue in the past, and they're probably going to go rogue again. Um, because Just because you are directionally wanting to go in the same place, they all want to have more power. So you're going to have multiple antichrists for rivals, and you're not going to have the religious aspect uh, necessarily working as to how those bloodlines would like it to be implemented. And that's part of that jostling for position that, that that's going on. So I get into all of that and sort of link that into the end time and how the Jesuits would fit in. Do you, do you think that the uh, rise of atheism has anything to do with anything? In the West. Uh, it, it's part of the tactics and it's part of the strategy. I would think it's more of a tactic. So, you know, what I argue in, in book one and more in book two as well is that polytheism has control over all of the sciences and education. And you can see that because it's, you know, in university, you're getting degrees like initiatory organization. You have... Uh, secret societies on on the campuses, whether it's a beta group or or it's a skull and bones group, they're all initiatory organizations where secret societies initially began before the flood as an extension through the mystery schools of right. the seven sciences that created the mystical religion. And so their goal was to and you have all everything named after polytheist gods and polytheist demigods and things like that. I mean, they honor their, their pantheon. So the four goals of, of uh, mysticism is, is to and understand that they've controlled education and science and knowledge from the beginning is to lead people away from God. Goal number one. Uh, the second thing is, is to not give God credit for anything and to degrade God at every opportunity. And then the fourth thing is to honor their pantheon of gods and everything they do in their buildings and things that they name things after. So when you look at the secular ideology, it is a short-term tactic to do those four things, or at least those three of those four things. And they're just designed to lead people away from God. 
because then they can rope them back in. But whether or not they want, they have them worshiping in their religions or not isn't the important thing. Is but the important thing is that they're not worshiping God, and therefore they're not going to be saved. All right, that works. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's <clears throat> it all goes into the. I think the the control genre that we talk about a lot is you know there's there's atheism there's the rise of you know evolution with Charles Darwin there's the um, the end point that that somebody like Nietzsche gave to Darwinism which is ascension you shall become as gods that that kind of aspect and I see that talk growing a lot more in our sort of circles people become disillusioned with what's right in front of them. And they're seeking constantly for like that truth nugget, Um, you know, instead of understanding that, Hey, we can't control things. Why don't we just raise families, get off the B system as much as possible, you know, and and protect what we have. Um, You know, people are actively seeking to gain power for themselves. I agree. Yes, I agree with you there, Reinhardt. Sorry, I don't. I'm sorry, I don't know if I was just on mute or I just killed the entire conversation. <laughs> no, no, you, you didn't. You didn't. I was just waiting for. I was waiting for Gary to say something. But, no. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, man. So there you go. That's the Jesuits. So the Jesuits could be involved at many different levels here and at many different points in history. And but nowadays, most people just know the Jesuits from a meme on Telegram or a meme on yeah. Facebook. Yeah, and people don't realize that uh, they were um, dismantled at one point in time because they got offside of the bloodlines. And uh, <clears throat> then after a couple of popes were um, imprisoned and kept in France, um, they reinstated, the popes reinstated the Jesuits to, you know, Give them a little bit of uh, protection from the power uh, of the bloodlines, and by the late 1960s, they had gone completely into the socialism sort of doctrine. And you know, they uh, they are a mystical secret society within the Catholic Church, and you know, in the uh, Rosicrucian and Gnostic belief system, um, the leader of the of the Jesuit is a black Pope. Um, and you get that black Pope as, you know, being, uh, one of the calling cards of the last Pope. And you have a black Pope who is now operating as, as a white Pope, which is the leader of the Vatican and the Jesuits have complete control over doctrine. And we just saw another conservative Bishop fall in Texas in the last, a few weeks that there's this driving out of any of the traditional arguments for doctrine. And if people had thought that they're not happy with Catholic doctrine before, what they're doing now is in preparation for uh, what they're going to want to do to bring about a universal religion. Uh, I don't think they're going to be the necessarily the dominant part, but they're going to be part of the universal religion. But keep an eye on the Mary apparitions, and I talk about that in the first book, and then I also talk a little bit more about that in, in terms of the Jesuits. And Ignatius was initiated onto his commission by a Mary apparition. Hmm. <laughs> and yeah, so it's it's this is a common Gnostic thing, and that 
you know, uh, Francis, in, in let's say about starting about 2017, 18, uh, fully accepted most of the merry apparitions uh, that happened in Medjugorje. And that this merry cult is growing within the church and at Medjugorje, and I talk about them in the first book. I also talk a little bit about them with the other kinds of merry apparitions in book two when I get into the prophetic side and understand that dualism in the queen of heaven is an important symbol and maybe at the top level, the most important symbol in the secret societies like the queen bee and the hive mind system and everything else that goes along with that occult belief system uh, is going to be sort of reimposed. And, and, and the apparitions are described as the woman in Revelation 12 as a usurping of that imagery for their own purposes as, as opposed to the imagery that's relative to the part of the prophecy of of Revelation 12, and that six children were initiated by this Mary Isis apparition at that time, and that they have specific dates to come out and to do apocalyptic prophecies for the whole world to convert to the true religion. Mm lest you be destroyed from the face of the earth. Now, I don't know whether those are the false prophets or there'll be something like that, because you never know in the polytheist side which factions get sort of full control, but you can see their strategy and their tactics. And so that would be one arm that's looking to get control of the religious sort of aspect. Uh, But I think it relates quite well, as would be, you know, part of, the reuniting of Vaticanus Hill with Palatine Hill, which are the original seven hills and the seat of idolatry that Babylon is described as uh, in the book of Revelation that sits on seven hills and also described in Greek as an allegory in the time of John for the city of Rome. So I think this has a lot of seeds in the universal church of Roman Catholicism, but it gets totally usurped and reinvented and will be used as a and convert to a polytheist religion. And I think the Mary, Mother of God, uh, Queen of Heaven uh, part is going to play a role of some significance in that because it transcends all of the other religions as well. Hmm. All right. So this is... Um these apparitions and things now, do you think this is some sort of uh, Project Bluebeam type thing they're using to project these, or is this some interdimensional thing, or is this just, just some BS that they're lying about? It could be all of the above, right? <laughs> <laughs> a little column A, B, C, all yeah, of that. I know, I know. I kind of, I, I know, that really wasn't fair, Gary. So, so, yeah. But, but, the history of it would suggest that it, it's a technology that goes before our time. So if you get this apparition that would appear, let's say, with Joan of Arc mm-hmm. um, or with Ignatius in the 1500s, I mean, this is in the spiritual realm of some sort. It's demonic. It is fallen angelic. Uh, and it is part of a you know, transgenerational, transmillennium plan to get us to that point. And if we look at Babylon, it's, 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 
this is these are the daughter of Babylon religions around the world, as they're mm-hmm. described in the Old Testament, and they're part of all the beast empires. It's part of that organizational hierarchy, just as Enochian mysticism was part of the Nephilim hierarchy uh, that controlled the world before the flood. You have that religion reestablished at Babel, which is sort of the post-Diluvian route to Babylon. And Babylon is rooted in the word Babel, so we can look at what Nimrod did there as, and also as an archetypical Antichrist figure with a universal religion over all of the Noahites and this technology that he was developing and the association that there's giants around that um, he's building a city of protection from. And so you have, as part of the beast empires, uh, Assyria, Babylon, or Assyria, uh, starting with Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, uh, Persia, uh, Greece, and uh, Rome, they all have this same Babel religion, a daughter of Babel, as part of that hierarchy. So it's the beast religion of the beast empires, and it will be again in the end times. So that's why you have the woman that's riding the beast and controlling the ten kings, who will hand their power over to Antichrist to destroy the woman because she's too powerful and too wealthy, and they want part of that action. All right. And that's now, where do, where do you posit along the timelines we are right now? I would say we're in the fig tree generation. Yeah. Um, now, we don't know how long a fig tree generation is. It could be... 40 years as in the time in the wilderness or as it's described in the time of the Exodus, uh, Psalms is 70 years and also 120 years in Genesis 6, three. So, and it doesn't have to go a full generation. And then the other key is, is what kicks off that fig tree generation? When does it start? Uh, I think, you know, in the new Testament, we have Jesus going to, a fig tree and killing it because it's no longer bearing fruit and they're about to reject them as, as the Messiah. And that fig tree is representative of the Southern kingdom. Mm. And in the old Testament, the vine was allegorical for the Northern kingdom and the fig tree was allegorical for the Southern kingdom. And then he uses the fig tree generation again as part of those overarching. So I think you have to have the southern kingdom, the remnant of the southern kingdom, back in the land of the covenant. But I think more importantly, you need control of Jerusalem because Jerusalem is the epicenter for end-time prophecy. Everything is sort of centering around Jerusalem. So... I would look not necessarily at 1947 as, as a declaration, but maybe the taking of Jerusalem in 1967. Um, and with that, I think we're in the fig tree generation. And so I don't think it's 40 years because we're, unless there's a different time frame um, uh, for the kickoff of it, it's got to be 70 or 120 years. So that puts us starting in about the 2030s if that speculation is, is accurate. And for the world to get to the last seven years in the 2030s, a lot of things are going to have to happen. And the three major stumbling blocks are universal religion, global government, and the ability to have the Jewish people begin their sacrifices on a wing or an overspreading or an extremity of the temple. 
And that's going to take a lot of catastrophes to bring that about. <laughs> well, they're doing they're doing what they can to 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 push that uh, all the way around. Um, you know, they're they're sinning against the earth. They're sinning against the humans. They're sinning against the animals. They're doing all the things. Um, I've heard I've heard the red heifer has been born three times now. So. Yeah, yeah, red heifer's been born, and and every and every river is turning to blood right now. Right. Yeah. Um, everybody gets ahead of chronology, mm-hmm. and it can happen fast as it starts to get rolling. But to me, those are the three stumbling blocks. So, unless you want to reinvent uh, the timelines that Jesus set down, or um, ignore inconvenient passages, uh, you really got. You know, Christians, we need to make sure we don't lose our credibility and don't get out there so far on a limb mm. that they just believe we make things up and we lose all of our credibility because the world's going to need us to testify properly. And so we need to we need to understand this and we need to understand prophecy and we need to understand prehistory and the churches are not preparing the flocks for that. No, right. they're too busy. They're too busy being gay. So to speak, yeah. like actually, no, no. I mean, I didn't mean, I didn't mean it. So like to the speak, way we used to, literally, yeah, like the way we used to say it when we were younger. Like you didn't mean that your yeah. friend was gay; you were just being yeah. gay, right? No, they're they're doing yeah. both right now. They're doing both. Yeah. Um, but what, <laughs> excuse me. Um, oh man, that made me laugh, and I forgot what I was going to say. Darn it. <laughs> oh. So and and oh wow, now that you just said oh, the you kicking off the end times, forget kicking off the end times thing, and I was like. Uh, and there was something in there that I wanted to ask, and then I forgot. Ah. Because of course I'm, 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 you know, I'm, I'm a grown up, and just j- gay jokes still make me laugh. Jokes are funny, <laughs> people. Okay, that's the people have to remember that like funny stuff is funny, and like you know, the, everybody's feelings have gotten in the way of things, and it's terrible. It is terrible. <laughs> I work in construction, Gary, and it's it's a bad it's bad when construction workers are like being like completely politically correct about everything. Wow. Yeah, it's terrible. Who would, who would have thought that was possible? I, I didn't, but I mean, well, but then <laughs> until you go into the porta potty and it's just all over the wall, that's where they get it all out. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Oh, it was the same. It was the same thing in the Navy too. Oh, yeah. for sure. For sure. Canadian, Canadian sailors that I worked with were, I mean, they, the minute they got the order down that they could wear skirts as men, uh, most of the guys I worked with were like, nope, I'm out. Yep. <laughs> yep. So yes, bad. who would... Pray, pray that we don't have war because I doubt whether our armed forces could protect us. I, I do too. And again, I believe all of this is completely part of part of the deal. It's all part of the agenda of what's going on with us. Like we have, you know, we have the uh, we don't know who's playing Joe Biden this week, but whoever he is, he's an eighty-something-year-old pants pooping old man who manages to fall down on a regular basis and doesn't break a hip. So, <laughs> right. But, but he's, but he's, you know, the United States is just an old white man who's in need of replacing. Yeah, he's an well, embarrassment, no doubt about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and as as we get into like this end times thing too, I think I remember my train of thought mm. is um, uh, people people are. It's about keeping the main things the main things and not getting so caught up in caring about the game. Johnny, we've talked about on the show, I don't know how many times. It's hard, like we said on Tuesday, actually. it's We can't even really get mad at the news anymore because we don't have stake in the game. We don't 
purposefully put our lives on the line in the game anymore because we know it's it is all just a game and we're never going to win it there's no winning side you know there there is well, there our is. lives there and is there's there's winning side obviously but like well okay. when it comes to when yes. it comes to like you know fighting the system and doing that kind of thing there's no you can, you're not gonna like we i think what I, you're talking about is when i use the the carlin quote uh if you think there's a solution you're part of the problem right yeah yeah and and i think i was gonna read yes there is a winning side yes there is a solution but it's not going to be a solution that we create right <laughs> yeah and we could you know if we all sort of rose up together and in the right way pushed back we could maybe push things back and delay things but they never stop on the other side mm-hmm. they've been doing this for thousands of years this is just they just regroup and they and then they double down again so they just don't stop so they but on the other hand they are frustrated because they would like to bring it about sooner um and they're just not able to do it and so we start to see them acting more irrational and doing worse things because they're in a panic to try and get it done before the ordained time. Mm. So right, that's it's... part of the whole dynamic that's sort of going on. So uh, do I think if Trump gets elected, he's going to cause them a little bit of grief again? Absolutely. But they'll continue to try and destroy him and they'll continue to push uh, so if we are in the fig tree generation, all the events that God, that Jesus predicted are going to happen in that generation, you know, heaven and earth will pass away, mm-hmm. but his words will never pass away. So if we're in the fig tree generation, yes, we could push things back, but not a whole bit because <laughs> it's that time. And so, Whenever it's permitted to to happen, uh, and the seventh empire starts to, to to take shape, and that universal religion starts to take shape, it's going to be horrific. And we need to, you know, we want to pray for a pre-trib rapture, but <laughs> we ought to prepare for that not happening then. Mm. And because if we uh, lose our faith or lose our credibility, we're not going to help people who need help to see what's going on in the world. Very true. And I remember what I was going to say now. Uh, You said about global religion and global governance. I believe that the global governance is a lot further along than they like to pretend it is. Uh, Like I always say, like, you know, we don't have a global government, but how is that lockdown? How'd that work out for everybody? Every government on the earth doing the exact same thing at the exact same time, even people that hate each other, Iran and Israel doing build back better right alongside each other. Yeah. So and they and they learned a lot of lessons from that what worked and what didn't work. Mm-hmm. And they're going to need another major pestilence or catastrophe that is going to allow them to do go even further. And again, people will be amazed that the whole world is doing the same thing even though it doesn't really have any science behind it, doesn't have any real facts behind it. It's all about an agenda. Right. We don't know what it's going to be because, I mean, like this week, Iceland is having like nine yep. gazillion volcanoes and, you know, uh, somewhere in America is having its first 400 earthquakes that it's never had before and somewhere else. Like, it's ridiculous, the stuff that's going on. There, 
you know, the weather is doing the thing. Uh, they're, you know, they're totally not messing with the weather, although they're messing with the weather. Um, <laughs> you know, all that stuff, the, the spraying yeah. of the skies that they're not doing, that they're totally yeah. doing. That, uh, it's just ridiculous. Yeah, they're bringing it about. Yeah, they're, um, doing, their, they're doing their part. They're doing their part. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's all it's, contri- contrived catastrophes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and Man. it's like the age-old adage, you know, in, in fiction, you know, a guy guy gets a prophecy, does everything he can to, to you know, turn it around and not and not have that happen, but he ends up making that happen. You know, it, ultimately, they have no control because ah. it's already written. You know, everything that they're doing is is part of that plan. They're pushing, they're pushing, they're pushing, and you know, I've, yeah. talking about portals going way back into into the first hour, talking about portals and. Um, and magic and the things that they do with technology, you know, remote viewing is a big part of that. And we've heard a lot of stories over the past few years that these, these elites, whether it's the mothers of darkness over in Europe or uh, whatever the male counterpart is there, um, they, they try and remote view into the future and try and, you know, plan things out almost like having the, the almanac in back to the future too. Um, mm-hmm but they can't see past a, a certain point that's all these disparate stories that talk about this remote viewing and, and future viewing. They can't see past a certain year, um, whether it's yeah, that, some say and, 2030, and, some say 2040. Right. And that was so succinctly put in the matrix mm-hmm. that right. they can't, they can't see past what they're not prepared to sort of understand and make decisions on at that point in time. So mm-hmm. whatever that means, but they recognize whatever technology they have, um, they, they can't see everything and they probably see very little and that might be a little bit directionally and not, and not, and not that far. So yeah, they are, they continue to be frustrated, but they continue to push. They just have this amazing resiliency to keep, you know, marching forward with it. Mm-hmm. Well, I always say that, you know, we're being degenerated, degenerated, devolved, whatever it is that's going on to humanity. Now they also live here and the environmental factors also have to play into them. So I, I think the elites are more, de- whoever is in charge is a little more degenerated as well. Um, I think that I like that, like we were talking about the visual ones, the ones that we can actually see that are quote in charge. Um, I think a lot of them are scared to turn over, the reins to their kids because all their kids went to Burning Man and now they're retarded. Is that, I mean, you see a lot, like <laughs> an, a lot of the older Astro guys. Astro World ritual. Yeah, the Astro World ritual, that kind of stuff. But no, seriously though, I think a lot of these, at least like their their kids have gone off and, and done the idiot research chemicals and, you know, now they're, they uh, they they shouldn't have done things, and now their 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 parents like the the Soroses are not wanting to turn the reins over to their kids. Really, I mean George, I'm using him as a bad example because he is his son is is up in the in in the uh, hierarchy. But like for the most part, like look look at all the elites' kids; they're all retards. Yeah, I think yeah, I think you're onto something like that. It's uh, an amazingly aged. Uh, control group that's visible that's out there that is like just clutching to it because they just seemingly be absolutely and i think you might be right absolutely afraid that the generation coming up isn't capable of doing what they want them to do or they're going to go into a different direction or Mm -hmm. they're just going to destroy everything i mean who knows what their fears are but they're certainly not passing on 
the power levers to the next generation uh, for, you know, whatever conclusions you want to make out of that. It's just right. amazing how old the leadership is in the world today. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, if, if these people, if you know, theories and rumors are true and these people have been able to extend their lives far past what their expiration date should have been, yeah, they're going to cling on to what they have gained, what they have have gotten from their ritual, from everything that they have sacrificed and and probably in most cases, uh, you know, defiled themselves for, mm-hmm. I'd say all cases, defiled themselves like Nimrod, I forget what that Hebrew word is, um, to gain that power. Yeah, they don't want to turn that over. Yep. Chill out. Yes. Yeah, they, they don't want to turn that over. And probably just as, you know, demons knew, knew who Jesus was, they probably know exactly what is waiting for them. Mm. Yep. There's that too. Yeah, yeah, wow. Well, Gary, we are coming up close to the end of two hours here, sir. Um, oh, I, man, it always flies by, and <laughs> and uh, it's always it's always great to talk to you, man. Thanks for thanks for coming by again. Yes, well, thank, thank you. you, thank you for inviting uh, me and uh, a chance to talk up a little bit about what's in my new book, and uh, hopefully, also as we're doing it, give some information and connect a few more dots for people to understand sort of what's going on t- today and. Uh, I always like to, I'll leave it with one sort of reference is that, you know, I talked about this oath, this transgenerational oath that's talked about to wipe Israel from the face of the earth at the Amalekites and the original uh, Rephaim after the flood and Canaanite nations were taking. And in Psalms 83, you got a list of these nations uh, and people should look at it. And they're conspiring together to wipe Israel from the face of the earth and that the Philistines are part of that um, oath. And uh, the Philistine metapolis uh, was made up of not just only the Philistine hybrids who come from Crete, but the giant nations that they bring with them, like the Cherethim and the Pelethim and the Casualim. And they don't drive all of the Anakim out. In fact, the Anakim will keep two of the cities of the five Philistine states and the Avim are going to be controlling one of the cities and the Philistines will control two of the cities and they're the nemesis of Israel after the exodus and the time of the judges and all the way through to the time of King David before they absolutely, you know, before they, you know, get them under control. And then on the northern border, which also is part of uh the covenant to wipe Israel from the face of the earth. You have uh, ha- not only Hamas, who probably have bloodlines back or perceived bloodlines back to some of these nations or the Arab states, which are also sort of listed in that uh, Psalms 83 as well. But now you have um, the Philistines as being the descendants or the ancestors of the Palestinians. And then on the northern border, you've wow. got here. And you've got Hezbollah operating to try and do the same thing to wipe Israel from the face of the earth. There's some sort of transgenerational, um, I guess, something in the D- transgenerational DNA that just keeps this blood oath to wipe Israel from the face mm. of the earth and by extension, humankind from the face of the earth so that we can't be raised up to be like angels that is inexplicable, that has been part of the curses of the covenant ever since Israel and, and the southern kingdom of Judah could not keep the full 
spirit of the covenant and we're suffering the destiny through the choices of Israel and the curses versus the blessings. But that doesn't mean Israel's not going to be saved in the end time. It doesn't mean they're not going to be reconciled because God will in the last three and a half years for Israel. And so all of this is interconnected what happened in the past. And the better we understand the history and the prehistory, the better we're going to be able to make sense of what's going on out there today. And there you have it. Excellent. All right. Well, thank you very much, Gary. I am so looking forward to the new book. I'm going to go read the excerpts completely now. <laughs> I read the first, I read really hard. I honestly, I'm not going to lie. I did not read all of the excerpts. I am not even going to say heavily skimmed because that's a lie as well. I really read like the first 30 and then I kind yeah. of skipped around to the rest. Yeah. So. You pleb. Whatever, dude. I was, I was short notice, man. So <laughs> I'm joking. I know. Oh man. No, thank thank you, Gary. And yeah, I think I think that's that's a great um, a great point to end on is just understanding how the past you know affects the future. That's something we've we've all heard, we've mm. all talked about, but just really how important that is and getting getting the past stuff correct <laughs> so that we can have the correct lens going into the future. So thank you for for coming back. It's always a pleasure. Um, and uh yeah yes sir um we will definitely when your book comes out we're gonna have to get you back on because we're gonna read we're gonna read all we'll power read a whole bunch of it and then we'll have a ton of questions for you <laughs> no doubt no doubt love to come back anytime it's been fun awesome and uh hopefully we help the, the audience connect a few more dots absolutely all right well thanks and- gary take it easy man well reinhardt one more time gary wayne man you you weren't kidding. Every time we go like two hours, it it feels like ten minutes. Dude, it was. Um, I I went and refilled my. I'm not gonna lie. I got up and refilled my coffee. I put the speakers on so I could hear, so I didn't miss anything. But I went and ran, refilled my coffee, and came back. And I was like, Oh man, I've 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 been trying to find a good place. I didn't know if we were gonna do a break, but <laughs> I I didn't know if we were either. But I I didn't find a good spot. But it was a good dude. We didn't need to. It's great. I this was this was this was my favorite Gary Wayne episode. Yeah. I mean, we, we ended up, we started in the beginning, you know, you asked about days of Noah and then we ended right, you know, right now and in the future, like went through so much of his book and yep. I, I, I can't wait to, to actually get into the whole thing. I got to get a new set of highlighters, dude. <laughs> I burned all mine out on the first one. Oh, maybe I'll get you a new set for Christmas. We'll do that. Aww. Aww. <laughs> oh, crap. $3. That. That's all you're worth, Reinhardt. Yeah. <laughs> That's you know what that's fair. Yeah, whatever. It's all good. Um, but we are going to wrap this one up. Um, I have a vacation to get to, and Reinhardt has. Don't you have like chickens or something or some? I gotta I gotta fix my doorknob. Oh no! There you go. Yes, this door. No, don't. Yeah, because because trash pandas will get in, and you don't want that. So yes, tra- trash pandas and people don't don't know this about them, but they're actually kind of like octopi where they can actually just you know, squeeze their body into a very small hole. Oh yeah. All those yeah. little rodents and mustelids and all them are all like, they can get in through small holes. I can ver anything to get to your trash. Yes, exactly. All right. Well, we're going to get out of here. There will be a creepy pasta at the end of this, and we will see you live on the nationalist inquirer week from Tuesday. 
Uh, so that in, will be the 28th. The 28th. Yes, the 28th. Enjoy your Thanksgiving. We are thankful for all of you. And I would like to say publicly, I am thankful for everybody who helps out on the show. Reinhardt, uh, Grognak, Skull, Jack, Dogbot, everybody. Um, all the, the guys behind the scenes, Aether, uh, Fash Gordon, uh, Typhus for coming on, uh, Battlebot, all the guys, all the guys. Uh, we're going to have more guys come on and... I'm thankful for all of our guests. I'm thankful for all you people listening. And we wouldn't be here without you. So thanks for all that. Thanks for listening to my silly little show. Agreed. Yeah, thank you guys very much for honestly keeping us going. I think I think this would have ended a long time ago through all, all the bull crap if we didn't have such a great community. So thank you very much. Yeah, I mean, it's fun. I mean, it, it definitely is fun to post a show and then see people talk about it. And then later on, they're like, hey, we sent this show to my friend and they loved it and like brought him around on this. And yeah, so we like that. Yeah, that's always really cool to hear. So yeah, hope you guys enjoyed this episode. Definitely. I know I did. I'm going to listen to it again myself. But um, until then, happy Thanksgiving and we'll see you all later. Time travel makes you gay. My name is Jack, and this is my confession. It was a night shrouded in ominous shadows, aboard a dimly lit subway train. Our gang of five, each a repository of dark pasts, was poised for what we thought would be the heist of the century. But among the panic-stricken faces, one passenger, a girl with an unsettling smile, sat undisturbed, her eyes piercing through the chaos. I approached her, my voice laced with a false bravado. You should be scared, I sneered, but her response sent chills down my spine. Scared, Jack? Like little Annie was in the hospital? Her knowledge of my past, of a secret I thought was buried deep, left me reeling. How do you know about Annie? I stammered, but she only smiled cryptically, her words echoing in the confined space. Secrets, Jack? They have a way of crawling back into the light. Then, as the train plunged into the tunnel, she vanished, leaving behind a haunting void. My phone rang. It was my wife, her voice trembling with fear. There's a girl here, staring at us. She won't speak. I'm scared, Jack. I abandoned the heist, rushing home, only to find a scene of horror. My wife and daughter lay motionless, their smiles a grotesque mimicry of life. And there she was. The enigmatic girl, her presence a sinister enigma. Why are you doing this? I demanded, my voice breaking. You're in hell, Jack. A hell of your own making, she whispered. Her words, a cold caress. This is your penance. Hell is repetition. I awoke, drenched in sweat, a nightmare fading yet persistently clinging. But the respite was fleeting. The heist day arrived, and I couldn't partake. Driven by a desperate hope, I fled with my family, seeking escape from the spectral girl and my haunted past. But as the train pulled away, my heart sank. My family was gone, replaced by her, the harbinger of my damnation. Welcome back, Jack, she murmured, her smile a chilling omen. Did you really think you could escape? In that moment, I understood. I was ensnared in a cycle of horror. A prisoner of my own guilt, and a past that refused to stay buried. This is my confession, a tale of a man haunted by more than just ghosts. It's a warning, a glimpse into a mystery that lurks in the shadows of our deeds. 
waiting to pull us into the abyss.